good morning. Wow. Um, I'm overwhelmed with that music. I don't know about you guys. Um, it's just beautiful. Thank you guys for leading that. Um, Angel, right, Angel? Tony and Beth Ann? It's just there's a sermon in that. I just couldn't help. Um, wow. If we, if we just listen to God um, throughout the day in different ways. I mean, in this example, you have different people singing. You have male and female. You had different voices, different notes. Beth Ann's playing keys with keys and chords over there. Tony's got different strings on his guitar. And he's like, but it's all going together in different parts. And it's praising the Lord. And it's just, it's just overwhelming for me. It's so beautiful. I love music. Um, and I think we can use that. You look at each other. Every, every single person in here is a note or a, a string or a chord or something. We're all different. Thank goodness we're all different. Um, but we work together. And ultimately, we are working together to, to praise the Lord. Um, I, I didn't write that down. So um, when Beth Ann said we, we were flying off the seat of our pants, I, th- I was thinking, you know, she's probably talking about me. Um, because I'm, my name is David Rosser, and if you're new to the church, you should know that I'm not the regular teacher. Tony's not here. He's, he's the, the regular teacher. Um, you're stuck with me this morning. And I have written this down, so if I'm looking down reading, it's because I am. If I, if I don't write down the sermon... Uh, who knows where I'll go. So it, it, I've written it down. Um, you're stuck with me this morning, but my dad was a preacher, as was my uncle, and my grandfather was a lay preacher, along with many others down the line. So I suppose it runs in the family, and maybe you're not completely bad off for it. Um, I was discussing the sermon with Tony a few weeks ago, and we both agreed that it was good for other people in the church to preach, although we had two different reasons, or I had a reason and he had a reason. Um, my reason was that Tony makes it look very easy. He does a good job at not only preparing the message, but delivering the message. Um, it takes years to develop that skill, so I figure it's good for the congregation every now and then to see someone struggle through a sermon and be reminded of just how difficult it is and, and how, and in effect, how blessed we are to have someone like Tony preach here almost every Sunday. Tony's reason was different. He, he likes that others preach occasionally because he, hate, he would hate to convey that this is his church and his vision only. He's always quick to say that he's just one of the elders. We have four or five elders. He's just one of them. He's just the one that happens to teach. And I appreciate Tony's humility and desire to deflect that attention. A quick internet search would find many examples of churches wrecked by ego-driven pastors. And certainly, the church universal suffers because of that. You know, we suffer when another church in the name of Christ is, is, is suffering because of, uh, of whatever problems they have, um, like an ego-driven pastor. So I'm thankful for Tony. And um, we all have our squabbles within a church, and no church is perfect, but I think it's important to realize how, how, how good um, and blessed we are when Tony speaks. So today, we are continuing in Timothy. Tony has started a, 
sermon series in Timothy, a couple months long, and we're going to continue with that today. Uh, it's convenient for me to preach this text because the text itself, it's a break in Paul's train of thought. Tony will pick things back up next week. Our text for today is 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. If you brought your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, yeah, it should be up there. Um, so 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting with verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. An old church friend and mentor of mine used to disapprove of the subject titles that our Bible shows every few paragraphs. Do you know, you know what I'm referring to? Every, I mean, it's not just the chapter headings, but every few paragraphs, um, your Bible has these little subject titles. And he went actually, he went further. He didn't like the chapter numbers either. So in his Bible, he had marked out the chapter numbers and those subject, subject headings. He explained to me that not only are the subject titles sometimes wrong in the sense that they may miss the point of the text, but they have the potential of short-circuiting the natural reading of the text. He felt like you should just, if it's a letter like the epistles, you read the whole letter. You don't break it down into sections and and headings and that sort of thing. Um, But he felt like that's a natural way of reading it. And so we might miss something or put improper emphasis on one part of the text, um, also, because we know the subject heading, we may read into the next the text at the risk of missing something, kind of like cliff notes. Like, why read the text if we can just read the cliff notes? In my Bible, the ESV, the subject title for our text is Christ Jesus Came to Save Sinners. Does anyone have a different one over this chapter or verse 12? Mine says Christ Jesus Came to Save Sinners. Any different ones out there? Paul's testimony. That's actually, that's a good one. That's, I think I agree with that one. Because <laughs> uh, that, the break in, in today's text, it's his testimony. He broke his thought and he felt compelled to give his testimony. That's good. Uh, but I wouldn't argue with that. Jesus came to save sinners. Who would argue with that? But my argument today is that if that's all we get out of the text, we're missing something important. Furthermore, if we stop there and rely on our 20th century senses, we may not even be fully understanding that subject heading itself. So that's today I want to dig, try to dig a little bit deeper. Last week we learned that Paul is warning Timothy against false teachers who are concerned with myths and genealogies, who are aspiring to be teachers of the law, yet don't understand the law. Paul says, and I'm just going to quote back from earlier in the chapter, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, 
for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexual immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So here Paul describes the law as good, if one uses it lawfully, and that it's specifically for sinners and not the righteous. You know, he's, he's learned that this, the law is actually for sinners. And it's at this point in today's text that Paul begins to reflect on his own conversion, on that grace that he was shown in being entrusted uh, to God's service. And he gives us a short testimony before continuing on in verse 18. And I want us to pay close attention to his testimony. He confesses his own sins as a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent of God, paralleling these with what would have been considered more grotesque sins above. Just the ones that we just read. And highlights his thought with a saying that may have been familiar to them, although it's not quoted anywhere else in Scripture and there's not any other record of this, but it seems to be something that they repeated, that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. My point this morning is that while this quote by Paul, it seems very normal to us, since we're all well-versed in our own indwelling sin, we all admit we're sinners, we're guilty, etc., etc., I want to argue that it's quite significant, even more that it isn't Paul's sense of guilt that suddenly came to life, but instead evidence of a cosmic work of God on earth in history beginning in Jesus Christ and embodied in his life. This cosmic work is also known as salvation, the kingdom of God, or the forgiveness of sins. So today I'm not going to appeal to your sense of guilt, but your sense of truth, hopefully. That's the goal. Like I said, um, you're guilty. I mean, I'll tell you, you're guilty. I'm guilty of thoughts, of of actions. Um, And you've heard, if you've grown up in churches, evangelical churches, you've heard that. Um, But that's for another day. I think that's a complicated uh, subject. Keep Paul's quote above in your thoughts. The one that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Just hold that, hold that in one hand. And we will come back to it. But hopefully we will come back to it better prepared to understand the significance of what Paul is saying and why. So let's learn about Paul. Apparently Paul studied under the Pharisee Gamaliel. You can read about that in Acts. A leading Jewish authority in the first century. And Paul was a Pharisee. I know that word conjures up ideas for anyone familiar with the Bible and even for those who aren't familiar with the Bible. Words like legalism, religious, religious, self-righteous, good works, whitewashed tombs, etc. All these words have worked, not, they're not only into the religious circles or churches, but into our culture as well, religious or not. There's no exact origin of the Pharisees, but it is commonly thought that they arose during the Maccabees Maccabean uprising, which was a Jewish reaction to being Hellenized by the pagan rulers. Basically, um, the Jews didn't they didn't like their religion being watered down by the the rulers, and um, they're being 
subject to do things that they didn't want or their temple was being desecrated, different things. Um, so it's during that time that, that we think the Pharisees developed. You can re- read about the Maccabees in the Apocrypha scriptures. Uh, the Pharisee name first appeared between 135 and 105 B.C. and is generally interpreted to mean the separated ones. That's very important to understand. It, that's how they viewed themselves and that's how they were viewed as the separated ones. Josephus, the early Jewish historian, stated, I don't know if this quote's up there, but the Pharisees are a group of Jews who have the reputation of excelling the rest of their nation in the observance of religion and as exact exponents of the law. That's from the Jewish Wars by Josephus. And if you've read any of the Gospels, this makes sense to you. You don't need Josephus to explain everything to you. Whether it's them questioning Jesus about eating with sinners or his disciples not washing their hands or questioning Jesus' observance of the Sabbath. Bruce Metzger, a respected linguist, theologian, and historian, says the following, Pharisaism is the final result of that conception of religion which makes religion consist in conformity to the law and promises God's grace only to the doers of the law. It's not that all Pharisees were hypocrites or evil people like they're easily characterized now. It would be short-sighted and unhelpful to have that singular view of them. They were zealous for God and his scriptures, the Torah. They were sincere in living a life, honoring God with their minds and their bodies. They were bold in their faith and stood up to pagan rulers who always threatened to water down the Jewish faith. Certainly, we as Christians can relate to these sentiments, right? The the things mentioned above. We find those things honorable. Now I'd like to start with a visual. Perfect. Now, two things. I hope to accomplish with this visual here. Um, I feel like I'm teaching and not preaching, but I don't know what the difference is sometimes. I may get to be preaching here in a minute. Um, I want two things. I want to first create a, an appropriate New Testament worldview of the Pharisees and by nature create a cheat code for reading the Gospels in a large portion of the New Testament. I'm dead serious, a cheat code. I know that sounds weird, but it's, it took me a long time to, to come to this simple diagram. But you don't need to take notes. If, you, if you're a note taker, you don't need to take notes. It's so e- easy and simple that you, you won't forget it. So here's a circle on the left that we'll label Pharisees. Remember, this is Paul's a Pharisee. This is, this is who he is. He's a good one, too. He's... Um, and he boasts in that. It's, I'm not being derogatory when I say that. He boasts in his abiding by the law. And he says blameless by the law. So um, I'm right there with Paul here. So it's labeled Pharisee, uh, quote, true Israel, end quote, as they like to think of themselves. And there were other groups that thought of themselves as true Israel as well. It wasn't just Pharisees. There was a handful of groups during Jesus' times that would have thought, we're the only faithful ones here. We're actually, you know, if God comes, the king, the Messiah comes, we're, we're actually the ones that will probably be saved and represent the kingdom. So they weren't the only ones, but Paul's the one we're learning about here today. Um, 
So within this circle, we're going to list some things that they believe made them who they were and which appealed them to God. And the first is the Torah. That's a fancy word for the law. Everyone, you guys have heard that. We, we read that. That's right there in our Old Testament, first five books of the Bible. The Pharisees were not only proud to possess the Torah, but also very careful to read it publicly, memorize it, and obey it. It was believed by some that to study the Torah was to be in the presence of God. And I, side note there, as, as the Jews got separated from the, the, um, the tabernacle and some of the, the um, sacrifices and they were spread out, at that point the, the Torah was magnified. You know, they couldn't do all the same sacrifices. They weren't all together. So as they were separated, the, the Torah and the scriptures were heightened for people that were um, away from Jerusalem. Next thing was circumcision. Like any good Jew, the Pharisee men would have been circumcised. The command given to Abraham and all his descendants. The Torah taught that anyone not circumcised would be cut off from Israel. Side note, keep this in mind, you may remember that Paul had Timothy, a grown man, circumcised as part of his Christian ministry. That's an Acts. That's, that's true. That's, that's strange, but it's true. Ethnicity. Judaism was first in ethnicity, made up of descendants of Abraham. This is easy to forget, but this is one of the main points of the book of Genesis. And I may argue the main point. Everyone, you know, everyone has their opinions, but I think the crux of Genesis is that this is where we come from. We are, we are uh, descendants of Abraham. So when the New Testament times arrived, after the exile, there were varying degrees of Jewish people according to their ethnic purity. For example, the Samaritans would have been considered half-breeds by many Pharisees. And salvation. As a true Israel, Pharisees thought that when God's Messiah came, they would be the particular beneficiaries to inherit the kingdom. In the first century, Israel believed it was still in exile. So, well, they were ruled by Rome. They were not sovereign. Their temple wasn't fully restored. And they were waiting on the son of David. We could go on, but I don't think we need to. I think that's enough for the Pharisee circle. It gives us very helpful conception of how the Pharisees viewed themselves. You're either in or you're out, according, according to these issues. Now I'd like to show a circle over to the right, and we'll label it non-Pharisees. And sinners is the, the first thing. Yep, there we go. So varying degrees, severely for some, anyone not a Pharisee would have been considered a sinner. Someone who did not obey the Torah properly and was located outside God's plan of salvation. While this word did have different connotations based on context, it would not have originally conveyed the full-on modern Christian understanding of one with indwelling sin. The Pharisees would admit to sinning, but they would not consider themselves sinners, which was a derogatory name. Does that, does that make sense? They, they agreed that they sinned, but they weren't like those sinners. And the Jews had a way to take care of their sin. That's what sacrifices were for. They, they were owned by God. God was theirs. They, the idea that they were sinners, um, it, it's just not the same idea that we think of as sinners. 
Sinners there would have been very derogatory, and it would have placed them outside the camp. And a good example would be the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You guys know that parable in Luke? Um, it's the Pharisee's proud not to be a sinner like the tax collector. The two guys, um, one's thankful to God, the Pharisee, that he's not like that sinner, that tax collector. That's uh, a good example of the use of that word. Next thing in our circle on the right are Samaritans. These would have been Jews who are left behind during the exile, intermarried, and seen as lower-class Jews because they were ethnically unclean, among other reasons. So it's simply people that intermarried and, and were not 100% Jewish um, anymore. There would have been other groups, but this is the most well-known and mentioned in the New Testament quite frequently, and quite intentionally, might I add. So if you see Samaritan, if... Jesus is talking to a Samaritan, or they're in Samaria, or they walk around Samaria. Just take note. That's, that's why. The Jews, Jewish leaders were not, Samaritans were not people to mix with. They weren't people to talk to. When, God talk, or when Jesus talks to a Samaritan lady at the well, that's kind of a big deal. Um, next thing is people of the land. The majority of Jews would have been considered people of the land. Perhaps Jewish by blood, they didn't follow the rabbinic, observances of the Torah. Perhaps secular Jew would be an appropriate way to think about them. Tax collectors, prostitutes, swindlers, what would have been considered wicked sinners. The parable above in, in Luke is a good example that refers to these people. And finally, we have Gentiles, which are even worse than the rest, and that's why they're completely outside of the circle. That's you and me, by the way. Unless there's some of you that have um, are Jewish, um, but as non-Jews, they would be seen completely outside of God's salvation. And advice: you need to read the Gospels as a good first-century first Jew with that understanding. When you're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you need to. We need to understand that Gentiles—they're not even in the picture yet. It's, it's. It's alluded to, it's alluded to, but with that understanding, we can, we can start to, to, I think, really understand what they're trying to say. Now, it's not that these sharp distinctions were always made by everyone, as if everyone had labels on their forehead, but at a basic level, those outside the pale would have included any and all of these groups to varying degrees, and they had one thing in common. They did not know, possess, or follow the Torah properly. We could go on further and elaborate. There are numerous stories of the Pharisees' interactions with outsiders, but I think we can stop. So I've not mentioned the wall in between these two circles, but yes, that's a wall. It's a big, strong wall. I wanted to say huge, but I don't know. Some people might like that, some people might not. Um, it's not a random wall, but it's one that I'll call the, the it's Creasus Creative, the Ephesians 2, 14, and 15 wall. The Ephesians, by the way, that's the same group of people that Paul wrote to, is the same people that Timothy now is, is ministering to. I'll read it shortly, but there, there's nothing difficult to understand about this wall. It separates these two circles of people. It keeps people out, 
It's a demarcation. But one last point I want to make about this diagram. This diagram represents the worldview that Jesus was born into and the general, general lens that one should read the Gospels with. Again, this is simplified. There's nuances within the New Testament, but this is a great simplified diagram to help you read the Gospels. When we read the Gospels, we have to keep in mind who is saying what, to whom, and where they fall within these worldviews. As much as I'd like to read story after story, parable after parable, through the lens above, I'll just mention one example. After walking through these diagrams, do you think the parable of the Good Samaritan is about a need for moral goodness as something better or over and against the legalism of the Jews? Or do you think maybe that Jesus is telling us something about his kingdom come, about who's in and playing on the expectations of the listener? Now about expectations. The likely expectations, again, we're still talking about Paul's um, kind of worldview here. The likely expectations of the Pharisees would have centered around them as a people. Who is he coming to save? Who is going to be redeemed? Who will finally be delivered from pagan rulers and return from exile? And the answer would be the Pharisees, of course, based on all the information above. And this, this would have been Paul's expectations as well. Now I'll read from Ezekiel, some text there. Yeah, this is, uh, this is, in a nutshell, some of the expectations that they might have had. I will take the people of Israel from the nations among them, which they have gone, and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountain of Israel, Think temple of Jerusalem there. The mountain of Israel is, is um, not just a random mountain. And one king shall be over them all. All that's familiar to us. And all these key words, people of Israel, their own land, one nation, mountain of Israel, one king. But we know how the story goes, and we know, at least we know how the story ends. These expectations weren't quite met like anyone predicted or hoped for. Now I want to read Ephesians 2, 14 through 15. This is about that wall that we, uh, you can go back to that slide. It doesn't hurt. So this is Ephesians 2, 14 and 15. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. You can show the next slide, Andrew. Or There we go. So, the two circles again, and now there's no wall in the middle. We just read about the wall in Ephesians. That wall's gone. It, it can't be any more clear. We had those two circles two different people, and that wall, that wall's gone. It's this overlap now that is the true kingdom of God. These are the true followers of God. It is a people of faith in Christ Jesus. It includes Jews, sinners, Samaritans, and yes, even Gentiles. 
which if we read our Bibles well, we'll note that the apostles didn't understand or agree on until well into Acts. And in fact, it was a huge point of contention. Yes, Jesus Christ, son of David, the Messiah of Israel, the son of God, a Jew among Jews, offered salvation outside the official structures to all the wrong people and on his own authority. That, that was the true offense of the gospel, and it provides a background for Paul's open hostility towards Jesus and then Christians. I'm going to read that one more time. Jesus offered salvation outside of the official structures to all the wrong people and on his own authority. But it's also this cosmic work of God. And when I say cosmic, I, I don't, that's not a, a fancy word. It means big. It means world-changing. It means it took place in time, and it changed the landscape of history. It's not some arbitrary uh, thing that happened that we can still kind of tap into. Something happened. Jesus Christ came. The Son of God came. The incarnation. He died for our sins. Something happened. The whole world history turns on that belief. So that's what I mean when I mean cosmic. I mean things actually change. He gave, and then what? He gave his spirit to the earth. He gave his spirit to the church, and we're um, appealing, making appeal to God. So that's what I mean when I, when I use, use that word. So Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus, and he didn't appeal to a sense of guilt, and, but to a sense of truth which Christ opened his eyes to. Ironically, he blinded him for three days, and I think that's pretty cool. Paul, who was, knew a lot, had seen a lot, what does he do to Paul? He blinds him for three days to show him the truth. It was not the truth he was expecting, and it was not a truth that he could see with his own eyes. That's very powerful. You see, initially, Paul didn't understand that the law was given to Israel because they were sinners he didn't i think they understood that at some time but over time through exile he saw the law as a right as a possession as a badge of honor along with the other jewish distinctions that we had listed on the left he didn't understand that he was under the same sentence of death as gentiles he didn't understand that faith was the foundation of his salvation but after meeting Jesus, he did. And it's with this background that we can now read Paul's words and understand the weight of them. I'm just going to reread our text for the day. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, 
be honor and glory forever. Amen. Paul the Pharisee, after listing the more grotesque and unlawful sin, sinners in the preceding paragraph, has just listed himself among them, and even more so as the foremost sinner. This is witness to the effective nature of the gospel, the work that God did in Christ Jesus. This is the kingdom of God. The gospel is not just an ahistorical, timeless offering of the forgiveness of sins, but the concrete work of God in history to redeem mankind, which included, which requires the forgiveness of sins. It isn't my conviction that scripture is is always for our practical application, which is different than some people um, might think. But we are compelled to take note of it when it is given. And here we don't have to look far. Simply put, Paul gave us his testimony because he believed that he, the foremost of sinners, if he could be saved, then anyone could be saved. It's that simple. That's, that's the point of what he just, he gave us his testimony to say, hey, if I could be saved, anybody can see, be saved. And for all these reasons, I think, um, I think that's, I think he believed that. Um, he thought he was in the correct circle his whole life, close to God, but God showed him otherwise. As the gospel stories and parables teach us, he was farther away than the sinners and the Gentiles. Brothers and sisters, is there something that you're holding on to that you think appeals you to God? Something you possess? Your heritage? Your parents' faith? Do you still view yourself over and against others? Especially within that diagram, the, uh, the second diagram. The kingdom of God overlapping. We're brothers and sisters, like we said at the beginning, different, different notes, different people, different kinds of people. But we, our identity is now in Christ. We can't look at, we, it changes fundamentally how we look at each other. Or on the other hand, do you think your sin keeps you separated from God? That's a tough one. Or is it so bad that God can't save you? It's my conviction that God has remedied, he's remedied, past tense. I think that's important. He's remedied these problems in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And I'll end with Paul's glorious vision from Ephesians. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And that's what Paul's saying happened. That's what he said happened in Jesus Christ. And I like this image here, surrounded, God's plan when the world is closing in. Um, and I'll probably read that a little differently than it was intended to, but I think if you want to know God's plan now, I think it's it's. Pro I think we start with God's original plan, what God did. We we focus on what God did in Christ, what that means, what that means for us, 
how we belong to God now. That is huge. That's where we start. And when we start there, when we start what happened in Christ and how that affects us, then God's plan for the today, either, either it takes its appropriate place um, or we learn a little bit more about it. And now we'll pray. That's it. Lord, we want to thank you for this day and this opportunity to come together and worship you and, and learn about you and, and, and meet with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we don't take that lightly, that we can do that freely and um, as often as we'd like. Lord, I pray for, for each person here that they would know you and they would know the awesome work of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I, I pray that you you touch them, Lord, and you just help us all understand that that work is not subject to our, our sense of feeling or our sense of guilt. But it, it's simply subject to Jesus Christ and what he did. And that's what we that's what we profess. We profess that that happened, that he was he raised from the grave, that he's seated at your hand. He's interceding for us. All those awesome truths, Lord, I pray that we could live today and live tomorrow and live the rest of this week in light of that awesome truth. Thank you, Lord, for breaking down the wall, removing removing the barrier that came between between us and you and, and us and other people. Lord, I, I'm I'm thankful, Lord, that it's it's never it was never anything we had to earn or anything we had to boast in, but um, just believe in your awesome work. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.